When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I'm speaking with Catherine Gentile about her novel, Sunday's Orphan. In the current climate, with the renewed attention being paid to the need for racial justice, Sunday's Orphan offers a stark portrait of how deep the roots of racial injustice have been in the United States. Set in rural Georgia in 1930, the novel follows the story of Promise Mears Crawford, who has just inherited 50 acres of land from her guardian Taylor, a utopian visionary. Death, thou intractable agent, just and eternal finale, after a life of enduring lies, you advance doggedly, you arrive too soon. Taylor Crawford, My Life in Georgia, 1929. Promise plunged her shovel into the sandy Georgia soil and splintered the last fence post her Uncle Taylor had hewn, marking the first page of her history since he had died. Etched in her memory was the layout of the property which embodied his life's work. To the north, Taylor's newly dug grave, situated, as he'd requested, alongside the graves of the slaves who had worked this plantation long before he came to own it. To the south, vegetable gardens. To the east, the cornbread footpath that meandered through the woods and past the inconspicuous structures housing the farm's workers and their families, and to the west, the pasture dotted with a small barn in which she sheltered animals recovering from a predatory assault. From where she stood within walking distance of Taylor's grave, she could see past the smokehouse and drought-stunted corn plants, over the bean and okra fields, to the lean-to beside the small barn. There stood the imposing figure of Fletch Hart, Uncle Taylor's 24-year-old foreman, who after Taylor's passing had reluctantly agreed to work for her. He looked up from his workbench where he'd been repairing the latch on a birdcage, and for the first time in the 20 years they'd known one another, made no move to wave or call her name. And now, please join me in welcoming Catherine Gentile. Hi, Catherine. I look forward to talking with you today. Good morning. How are you? 
I'm great, thank you. Uh, do start by telling us a bit about your background and how you got into writing fiction. Oh, heavens. I've written fiction most of my life, and uh, I think as a young child, I was uh, a rather decent storyteller, and that was stories that were told out loud, of course, and uh, depending on the situation, uh, adjusting stories to fit the situation. And uh, I think I found, I had my first play um, actually produced when I was in sixth grade and a second play when I was in eighth grade, um, neither of which is um, merits talking about, but it's just uh, when I think back, I was, I was actually writing at a very early age, writing stories and trying to turn them into something that uh, other people would enjoy, vis-a-vis plays and so forth. So I've written all my life and I've kept journals. And it wasn't until I was in my 50s that I really was able to dedicate the type of time I wanted to writing. And I realized it was so much a part of me that I needed to do something. And I've been writing ever since. You've also published a short story collection called Small Lies and a fictionalized memoir, The Quiet Quiet Roar of a Hummingbird. What can you tell us about those works? Well, let's see. The Quiet Roar of the Hummingbird was the first uh, novel that I wrote. And it's, as you said, it's it's a fictionalized memoir. It was about um, my family's journey with my mom, who had Alzheimer's for 13 years. And um, I, I wrote the book to kind of consolidate some of the, a lot of the information that we had encountered in our journey. Um, and at that time, that was prior to 2013. Uh, so that was 13 years prior to that. Um, there wasn't a, a lot of support for persons who had Alzheimer's nor their families. So this was a, a something to offer people to give them some um, notions of ways they could approach and issues that they would encounter. So that was that one. And it kind of wrote itself because I spent a lot of time with my mom at a uh, memory care facility. And as we were, you know, the hours would go by, uh, the stories would go through my head. And by the time I sat down at the computer, it kind of felt like the book wrote itself. So that was uh, an interesting experience for me. And it was a cathartic experience also. So I, I found it kind of healing. Um, and the second uh, second publication, uh, as you mentioned, was Small Lies, the collection of short stories. And um, at that time, there was so much going on in the world. I was trying to capture um, stories. I was trying to capture events in the world in short stories. And um, I captured some that were worldwide. I mean, some one story takes place in Afghanistan. Um, and uh, there's a piece that has a Denmark piece in it. Um, and I also captured stories that were um, close to home. So they were bits and pieces of, of that type of material. But what I found was that in each story, there were some sort of a lie, some sort of an untruth, and the characters had to deal with what was going on there. So uh, that's what brought the stories together. And where does Sunday's Orphan come from? What drew you to this story? Uh, well, I've always been interested in racism and curious about it because I grew up side by side with kids who were um, Negro kids, we called them back then. And, um, you know, we were we were curious about one another. I mean, I, I wondered why the little 
children had very lovely curly hair and I had, you know, less curly hair. My hair is curly, but not like theirs. And uh, they wondered why my skin was so white. And I went home to my dad and I asked him what was going on. Why, why were they a different color and I was white? And he, being an artist, said to me, because they had a different pigmentation in their skin and they had more of one sort of pigmentation than I did. And, uh, to me, that was a fine answer, and to the rest of the kids, they seemed okay with that. So we grew up side by side, and it wasn't an issue. I mean, that was right through high school, and um, then I began to realize things weren't so easy in the world, and um, I continued to wonder about, you know, where is it coming from? Is this something we created? And then things uh, like uh, Emmett Till, of course, uh, caught my attention and um, things that happened to, uh, this wasn't a a racial issue, but it certainly was a prejudicial issue having to do with Matthew Shepard. And I just thought the violence that comes out of this is just astounding. So I, I, I think I may have written it to try to help myself understand uh, what causes people to move into um, violent reactions to people being very different from themselves. Did you have personal experience of the Jim Crow South or did you do research for it? And if so, how did you go about it? You know, um, a lot of writers come up to Maine and they wind up, they visit, they, they vacation or they have a summer home here and they wind up writing stories about the vacation area. And I had the same experience, except I went down south. I went to Georgia and vacationed there a a number of times. And I was fascinated with the area. I just, there's something about the south that uh, entrances me. And maybe it's just because it's such a different area um, than Maine. But um, I became very interested in the culture down there and very interested in um, doing some research about Jim Crow. And uh, I, I, that's, what in, that's what started me on this, this uh, story. And I did a lot of research, um, book work, internet work. Um, I talked to people at different universities and got tapes that they had um, put together that helped me in different uh, aspects for the story. And the other thing was I, I went back and I visited with, like many authors do, with um, a notebook full of questions. So once I realized what I needed to know for the story and what I didn't have a good handle on, I, I went back and um, had wonderful, wonderful assistance by librarians and citizens who were very interested in telling me their stories. So it was a, a fascinating experience, and I found how much I love doing the research. I love having that as my focus when I'm uh, writing a story. I just uh, can't wait to get into the next one. Well, we'll talk about that before I let you go. But uh, let's talk about this one for a moment. Uh, Your heroine, whose first name is Promise, has inherited a piece of land with a remarkable history that sets it apart from the properties around it. So fill us in on her guardian, Taylor Crawford, and his vision of racial harmony. Uh, Taylor was a graduate of the Harvard School, um, which was at that time, I don't know if it was called back then, but it was essentially a school of divinity. And so he was a Reverend Taylor Crawford, and he had some very different ideas about uh, racial harmony, uh, essentially that all should be one. Um, and it, it would, they were, this idea was different 
than the ideas maintained by his colleagues in Boston. And he was uh, a a very vocal proponent of that. He was eventually driven out of the Harvard arena, uh, the Boston arena. And he went down south and had a, a, a good friend, uh, Will Hart, with whom he found this piece of fallow land. It was the part of an enormous plantation, only 50 acres, but he purchased it. And there he set up uh, what he determined would be his utopian uh, vision. And that was a place where blacks and whites could live on the same property, work together and live together in harmony, and that everyone would be educated. Um, And that's exactly what he did. He was an educator and he educated all the folks on his um, plantation and including including promise. So he was a very influential character um, and he managed to maintain the peace on his plantation. And that was at great cost, which is what the story is about. So Promise's identity turns out to be a much more complicated question than we know at the beginning of the novel. But tell us about her uh, as your main character, as she's portrayed at the beginning of the novel. Who is she and how would you describe her as a personality? Well, um, she is a very confident, self-possessed woman. Um, She's been raised since an infant um, by her, what we call her adoptive uncle, and that was Taylor. He was not a blood relative. And um, he adopted her and raised her by himself. And um, he did not discriminate uh, in terms of watering down whatever she had to learn or do because she was a woman. Um, He sat her down side by side with a couple of the other characters in the book, the men, Fletch Hart and his brother, Trivet Hart, and taught all of them the same. So she was uh, confident, she was self-reliant, and she was independent, and she had a lot of skills. Um, and she she could run the farm. Uh, she trained animals. She healed animals. Uh, she especially worked with animals that were broken in spirit and uh, quite unruly. So I found her to be a competent lady. Uh, She was also taught to think and to observe, and this served her well as the story unfolded. And what does she want from her life at this point? Well, one of the things she wanted, when the story opens, um, she's She's really in mourning. She's lost Taylor Crawford, her adoptive uncle. He he had passed away, and he had left her with a farm that she thought was in better shape financially uh, and was not. And he had made some promises to people on the farm that he would support them and uh, support their future careers, and he could not do that, or she could not do that now as the person who inherited the farm. So she was dealing with, how do I manage that piece? Uh, and dealing with uh, why would Taylor even leave a mess like that? He was It was unlike him. So she was disappointed with him, um, probably a little bit angry at him, annoyed. Um, and her friendship, which had been very dear with Fletch Hart, um, who was the foreman of the farm, uh, had been compromised. Um, and this was, again, Taylor's doing. Soon after we meet her, she's presented with an additional dilemma in the person of 
Daphne Mears? Do you say it as Mears? Yes, that's correct, yeah. Uh, Who is he? What does he want from Promise, and why does she give in to his demands? Well, he is a character who has not been part of her life all her life. So she's 20 years old, and she's never met him before. She's heard about him. He's a dastardly character. Um, He's known as a what they called a Jim Crow enforcer. And that was somebody who really uh, uh, took the Jim Crow laws to heart and um, made sure that people were following what the uh, laws prescribed. And these are unwritten laws, of course, and um, was known to have, uh, have killed people to keep them to maintain fear and to keep that in their lives. So, when he showed up uh, on her farm shortly after um, after the story opens, and of course after Taylor had died, he comes on the scene and she is with um, Fletch, who is a Negro, and uh, it's quite obvious they're working together, which they had always done. But in Jim Crow law, a white man, a white woman, and a, a black man were not to be together um, unescorted or unchaperoned. Um, so she knew that she was in trouble when he showed up, and he um, he kind of knew her soft spot. He knew that he, if he asked uh, for a job, she would have to acquiesce. And while she tried to avoid it, um, she in, she ultimately did. She offered him a job, but only for a week. And she did that because she knew that if she did not offer him a job, then he would certainly make something, a big deal, out of the fact that she was alone with Fletch. Um, so to protect Fletch, um, she went ahead and did this, but uh, it led to further complications, of course. Tell us a little bit more about Fletch Hart. Uh, he might be considered a protege of Taylor's, and he's in a difficult position, as you just indicated, and a little reluctant to work for Promise. Um, what's his story? Well, uh, he is a brilliant young black man. He's 24 years old, and um He has been tutored by Taylor all his life, and he has been accepted at Harvard uh, at their medical school. And Taylor was grooming him to become a physician. And the plan, Taylor's plan, was that um, Fletch Hart would come back and tend to the medical needs of the people on the island. And um, it looked as if his future was going to be quite promising until Taylor died and the funds to uh, help provide for the uh, tuition at uh, Harvard were not there. So Fletch kind of assumes that Promise has had something to do with those funds being unavailable because she didn't want to let him go. Um, She didn't want to see him leave. And um, I think hurt and disappointment was a lot of his... um, uh, his was in his psyche and it prompted him to probably make some decisions about promise that were not quite accurate, not quite in keeping with who she was. Um, nonetheless, their friendship is put to the test and, and he's, he's a rather standoffish, uh, which is very unusual for him. He's particularly unhappy too, with the arrival of Daphron and for good reason. Oh, absolutely. I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about their relationship, perhaps, um, and how it's affected by the Jim Crow, the reality of the Jim Crow laws. 
uh, the relationship between Paramus and Fletch? Well, either that or the re- relationship between Fletch and Daphrin. Well, um, essentially, they have no immediate relationship um, uh, other than that particular meeting at uh, the farm on that day. But it's a fear. It's a relationship of fear. Um, Fletch knows who this fella is. He knows that he has the reputation of um, brutally murdering black people. And um, he knows that they're now in trouble. So he's smart enough to know that the, the years he spent on this farm with Taylor were special years and that I think Fletch sees those years, the, the, the protection of those years, he sees them dissipate right in front of his eyes when Daffron shows up. So, you know, Fletch is not only worried about himself, he's worried about uh, Daffron finding out that he's been, been promised to go up to Harvard, um, that his mother, Mother Hart, is living on the farm, an elderly woman, and um, that there are other black families on the farm as well. So, he he's quite concerned about what's going on and what this man's presence means. His mother, Fletch's mother, that is, is the town midwife, and she is quite an important character in the book, too. Can you tell us a bit about her? She is a grounding uh, character, and by that I mean that people, black and white, look to her for a sense of perspective, for a sense of good old common sense, for a sense of things are going to be okay. And when things go a little awry, she, people look to her and her wisdom for a plan. What are we going to do about this and how are we going to do it? And she usually manages to support them quite effectively. Um, and as the story is, is opening, we, we start to see Mother Heart uh, as we move into the story. And she is not doing quite as well as her reputation would lead one to believe or lead one to expect. So she's somebody who is very, very profoundly affected by Daffron's appearance. As you've mentioned, Daffron has... Um overseen various lynchings uh, even before the novel begins. And there is one within the first quarter of the book, uh, which is a particularly painful element of the history, but also your novel. Um, What can you tell us about this part of the story and why you chose to include it? Well, you know, when I first wrote the story, um, I did not include it. And um, I thought about it, but uh, it's ugly it's painful. Uh, and, uh, I didn't want to go there. I didn't want to do there, do that as a writer. You know, you're writing, you sit at a desk and you sit with your material and your characters for hours on end and they become part of your own psyche, uh, in that you're, it's just an intense relationship. So I had no desire to, um, to do that, to talk about it. And, um, my writing group, um, reviewed my material and they said to me, you know, it's like the um, shotgun that you put on the mantelpiece in the opening scene. Uh, if you've got a shotgun there, you have to use it. And um, and so my shotgun was Daffron and they insisted, nope, you, you've got to you've got to go down that road. So I did. Um, and thank goodness, I, I've had no experience, direct experience with that level of violence. Um, but I certainly had to do the research. And 
it's amazing the research that is out there, the information that is out there on this um, horrible, horrible uh, type of violence, and including uh, photographs and, and, and all sorts of very, very graphic material. So, um, yeah, it was very hard to write. And um, I think what it ultimately did, and this is how I looked at it, is, you know, maybe we all need to understand that life is not quite as sanitized as the way we live it now, and that people, even to this day, there are people who are encountering this fear uh, on all sorts of levels. So um, it had its place in in the story, uh, reluctantly, but yes, it's there. Yes, it must have been excruciating to write. Yeah, it was not. It was not fun. It was not fun. <laughs> so, two other characters who are mentioned early in the book and soon make an appearance are Andrew Gills and his sister Ellen, who both come from Boston. Uh, Taylor Crawford had picked Andrew out as Promise's husband and considered leaving the property to him rather than to Promise. Uh, what caused those plans to change? We're not quite sure, uh, and this is through Promise's eyes. Uh, Taylor, as he uh, got closer to death, he was quite ill, uh, seemed to become somewhat irrational. He couldn't quite decide how he wanted to manage this um, this uh, empire, this small empire on the plantation that he had built. And I, I think he was his concern was, how do I control this? beyond? How do I make sure that they continue with my legacy? And um, I think he was probably deciding who would be the best person to continue with that legacy. And I think he was trying to weigh what the pros and cons would be. And uh, Andrew certainly brought money and financial uh, savvy to the situation. Um, But I don't think he brought heart. Uh, I think he was more about Andrew and promise was certainly about uh, whatever Taylor wanted um, and his his uh, maintaining the plantation as he had had it. So I, I think he ultimately went with her for that reason. Um, I'll leave that at that. So in a sense, that answers my next question, but I'm curious just to hear about it from a writer's point of view. Um, would it have made a difference to the people in your story if Andrew had inherited the farm and married Promise? Uh, why did you make a different choice? Um, I think the story would have ended. Um, Andrew and his sister were well healed. They were from Boston. They were not farmers. Um, you know, they were. They were. He was really not not terribly interested in. Uh, anything having to do with farming other than horses. And the reason he was interested in horses was because he was a a gambler. He liked racehorses. And Ellen was at the other end of the spectrum, a little more lofty, but still uh, within a very encapsulated, comfortable view of the world. So she could be very liberal. uh, And her liberality came in trying to promote an anti-lynching law. Um, she tries to promote this law, and she does it does so. Uh, she's effective within her circles. She's working on pulling together a uh, a conference or working at a conference, and um, so she's quite committed to it. But she's 
also uh, unusual, or she's usual, other people have told me, um, people who have been in these circumstances, in that she excludes black people from something that has to do with black people. So you kind of wonder where her heart is at. So between the two of them, Andrew and Ellen, uh, I as an author did not see them as being genuine enough to continue with the story along their line. Uh, it would have had a very, very different trajectory. Um, and I, that wouldn't have been comfortable for me to even think about. There are lots of other characters and incidents that I haven't mentioned. Uh, Suzanne and Margaret, for example, among the characters. Uh, is there anyone or anything you'd particularly like readers to learn about? Well, I think just to share something from an author's perspective, and that is that I found um, the story is a difficult story, as we've spoken about. And um, I, as an author, I found it difficult to be with these people, these characters day in and day out. And I needed someone who was going to be add a little levity to um the story, I mean, not hilarity by any means, but a little bit of levity and a little bit of innocence. Um, and that that came about through the character of AC, who is Margaret's um, Margaret's brother. And Margaret, by the way, is Daphron's wife. So um, between Daphron's brother-in-law, AC, and also his daughter, um, Beatty, uh, there's just some injection of innocence, uh, and it's innocence that gets tainted, um, which is difficult. But nonetheless, there's innocence there, and to me, that offered some hope. And uh, it was enough to keep me um, feeling comfortable and fluid about my writing um, and to give me something to think about other than the difficulties that these characters were encountering. That's an interesting take. Um, tell us a little bit more about Margaret, actually. What's it like to be Daphron's wife? You know, uh, Margaret lived with Daphron prior to marriage, and the mother heart suspects that um, she became pregnant, and that's when the marriage ensued. Uh, mother heart pretty much mourned the fact that Margaret, who she thought was quite a lovely human being, uh, got stuck with Daphron, if you will, and her life was not uh, an easy one. Um, I think she had basically what she needed in terms of a roof over her head, but she kind of lived in squalor, and um, I think she had a suspicion as to who Daphron really was. Uh, he wasn't home a lot. He had been pretty much driven out of the area by Taylor, and so he was in and out of her life. But I think she, I think she got an inkling as to what this person was about, and she was actually able to um, help crack open what was going on with him and what he what he had been doing. And uh, she and Mother Heart joined forces um, to to help bring him down. Um, so she's not a major character, but she's important in that she really knew somebody who was had a major piece in the story. What would you like people to take away from Sunday's Orphan? Oh, heavens. Um, you know, what I saw uh, in the story was a 
remarkable sense of love that came across through particularly um, Mother Heart. And um, by that, I mean that she gave uh, totally of herself to the point of losing her sanity, essentially. And um, she had to keep a lot of information. I mean, black people and white people shared information with her that they would never share with anybody else. And she was known to never, never breathe a word of all of these things. And, uh, and that included information about her own life. So uh, I think she had a tremendous amount of love. She tried to protect everyone in her family. And uh, she really sacrificed herself uh, to that end. So I think about the power of love being something that we give to someone else or for other purposes. And that um, violence really has no place. It's part of our lives. But when you consider how human nature thrives, the conditions under which it will thrive, um, it does not thrive when violence is a part of life. So I think it's a a book about um, two things, love and compassion and um, mercy and and violence. And uh, that's how I look at the book. You mentioned that you're working on something else. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I'm doing. I have a couple of nonfiction projects going on. I write a um, monthly e-zine for persons, uh, caregivers of persons with neurological issues, Alzheimer's, and other types of dementia, uh, and Parkinson's, that type of thing. So I, I work on that at a regular basis. There's some interesting things happening in that realm right now. Um, I'm also working on a um, what I hope will become my next novel, and it has to do with, um, it's set in Maine, and it has to do with a young fellow, uh, Japanese fellow, post-internment uh, here in the United States. Um, so I've been working on that for a while. I'm going to go back to that. And I have uh, another historical fiction that I'm going to start researching, and that's going to be um, that's going to be set in Europe in the Middle Ages. Um, and that's been something that's been on my mind for a long time. So I'm looking forward to getting into that. That's a wide range there. Anywhere particular in Europe? <laughs> uh, I'm thinking Belgium, um, perhaps Germany, but yeah. Yeah, I, I haven't quite decided how, how I have to work out. You know, it's interesting. Uh, uh, stories to me come very organically. So I, I rarely decide on one piece and say, well, that's it. And everything emanates from that. All the pieces have to fit together. So I have to get a better idea of what I want to do with those pieces or, or what those pieces want to do with me uh, <laughs> before I can pinpoint exactly where it's going to be set. Well, I wish you luck. And thank you so much for sharing your time with us today, Catherine. Thank you, Carolyn. It's been a delight. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books and Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with Catherine Gentile about Sunday's Orphan. Find out more about her at www.catherinegentile.com. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books Network. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. 
You can find out more about me and my books at www.cblesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network.